Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Clyde Christian Bible Church podcast. Very exciting news. Starting next week, June 21st, we will be having in-church services in the building of Clyde Christian Bible Church. It, there's all kinds of restrictions we need to follow, but uh, we're looking forward to being actually together in the building. So the next few sermons you hear will be um, done live with people in the building, which is always way better than whatever this is. So look forward to that. But for now, we are continuing through First Samuel. We are in First Samuel chapter 16 today. Famously, in life, it's important to make good first impressions. This is true in the business world to the point where people work on practicing their handshakes. Three strong pumps, any fewer and it communicates a desire to flee, any more and it creates an uncomfortable intimacy. Neither of those is good for business, so you want three strong pumps. Make sure your grip is strong, but not crushingly so. Too limp and it communicates weakness. Too firm and it communicates a dominating personality. Again, neither is good for business. Be aware of where your hand meets theirs by extending your arm slightly out from your body. Having your arm fully extended communicates desperation. Having it too close to the body communicates that you're a creep with no understanding of personal space. Again, neither is good for business. The pump, the grip, the body positioning, and that's not even getting into facial expression, eye contact, tone of voice, or the words you actually say. All of these potentially being bad for business. Thousands of dollars hanging on split-second decisions revolving around the shaking of hands. That's the importance of first impressions. Beyond the business world, first impressions are important in art and pop culture as well. Under the traditional television model, producers would sink hundreds of thousands of dollars into pilot episodes, the first episode in a comedic or dramatic series. It's called a pilot. This is because studios would invest in their creation based solely on the work of that one episode. One of my favorite TV shows was a mysterious drama called Lost. To set the stage for all that drama, for the pilot episode they filmed a plane crash on a deserted island. And to set the stage for all that mystery, in that pilot episode the survivors are attacked by a polar bear on a desert island. It was very intriguing stuff and it was all loaded into one episode. And that one episode of TV, the pilot for Lost, cost $12 million, a record at that point, setting the stage for a massively influential and entertaining six seasons to come. And speaking of influential and entertaining, let's talk about one of my favorite musical artists, Bob Dylan. Around 2005, Rolling Stone magazine, which was the rock and roll Bible, lowercase b Bible, published a special edition naming the 500 greatest songs of all time. And at number one was Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, from his album Highway 61 Revisited, a song and an album which touched off an explosion of abstract artistry and popular music, while also remaining musically digestible. And the first sound you hear on Like a Rolling Stone, the greatest song of all time according to Rolling Stone, before the laser-sharp guitars and swirling organ and the, the pleadingly emotional how does it feel, before any of that, you hear the single crashing smack of a snare drum. Bruce Springsteen, who is pretty influential himself, Bruce Springsteen would later call that snare shot the sound of someone kicking open the door to your mind. I think about that quote a lot, like way too much. I love that quote. That snare is the first sound on the greatest song, kicking off one of rock's most influential albums, written by one of the most monumental musical artists of the last century. So yeah, first impressions matter, down to a single drum smack kicking open the door to your mind. 
These are all small things and easy to gloss over. A single shaking of hands, a single episode out of 121 in total, a single drum shot. But these first impressions are crucial, setting the stage for everything that will follow. A well-executed handshake communicates the nature of the business transactions to come. A well-shot and fascinating $12 million investment unlocks a world of mystery and romance and danger and polar bears on tropical islands. A single drumbeat announcing to the world that poetry and music has been transformed forever. First impressions matter. But forget pop culture, let's look at the Bible. Some of our greatest heroes get auspicious introductions. Adam and Eve from Dust and Ribs, respectively, reminding us that our Creator keeps us connected to both nature and one another. Or Jacob, who was born grabbing his hairy twin by the heel like the grabbing trickster he would become. Or Moses, delivered from genocide by floating in a basket down the river before being adopted into Pharaoh's household. Or even our own Samuel. Even Samuel was a miracle baby, born to a faithful mother for faithful service to a faithful God. And then there's Jesus, who was born to a virgin, which is really just God showing off, reminding us all who the Messiah's father truly is. When you, when you think of Saul, and Saul is the monarchy's first impression for all of Israel. When you think of Saul, Saul gave off a strong first impression as well. He was the unwitting king, at, at once cowardly, which isn't the best first first impression. But after that, he was overcome by the Spirit's power to deliver victory for God's people. That's a good first impression. But Saul's first impression of anointing, divine selection, priestly celebration, glorious victory, that first impression wore off incredibly quick. It was a good, firm handshake that betrayed a bad deal when it came to Israel's monarchy. It was a strong pilot episode that betrayed a royal narrative that trailed off in bad directions and concluded poorly. It was the snare drum kicking open the door to Saul's mind, but all that entered his mind was disobedience and arrogance and a stubborn refusal to allow God to be king. In Saul, we see that first impressions are important, but they can also be misleading. Well, today we are given the first impression of one of the five most crucially important people, perhaps even top three, in all of scripture. Today we meet David, the man after God's own heart, the greatest king of Israel, the one that everything in 1 Samuel has built up towards thus far. Interestingly enough, much like Jesus' birth narrative in the Gospels, we're not given one formal introduction to David, we're given three. That's how important he is. One first impression isn't enough. We need a first first impression, a second first impression, and a third first impression. Today we will examine 1 Samuel 16 verses 1 to 13. This is our first first impression of the future king, David. Next week is the second first impression, which will be the rest of chapter 16. And then the week after that will be the third first impression. And that's easily the most familiar of them all. That's David's battle against the Philistine giant, Goliath. There's a lot to learn about David and God and ourselves from these first impressions. These are the handshakes that presage the faith-filled royal business to come. The pilot episodes that fill us with drama and mystery and worship. The drum strikes that kick open the door to our understanding of what it means to be called from nothing to serve our Almighty God. Let's read 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13, David's first first impression. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. It's interesting that Samuel has always shown complete power over Saul. 
Here, he's afraid of Saul. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Eliab was Jesse's oldest son. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. This chapter marks the halfway point in the book of Samuel. There are 15 chapters before it, and there are 15 chapters after it. So this book literally pivots around these intertwined narratives, the continued fall of disobedient Saul, which we saw in the last chapter and which we'll see in the story to come, and the rise of faithful David, which begins today. Last week marked the final nail in the coffin of Saul's anointed leadership. Though he will remain king, he has been rejected by God for his continual unwillingness to submit to the Lord's directions. Chapter 15 ended with Saul separating from Samuel, thus separating Saul from God himself. And Samuel mourned for Saul's state of condemnation. But with the beginning of this chapter, God makes it abundantly clear to Samuel, get over it. Stop your grieving and your mourning and go about finding the next king to anoint. It's time for David. The language of the Hebrew in verse 1 is very strong. God says, I have provided for myself a king from among Jesse's sons. This is the first in a series of contrasts between Saul and David. Saul was likewise chosen by God, but he was chosen to please the nation of Israel who demanded a king. Now, God is doing the choosing, and he is choosing for himself. It is God demanding a new king, one who will not habitually disobey, and when he does disobey, will know the proper way to respond, honest repentance, rather than selfish justifications and excuses. David is God's wholehearted choice because David is wholehearted for God. So Samuel packs his bags and heads off for Bethlehem, unaware of what will happen next. In fact, Samuel's nervous, even fearing for his life. It is treacherous work to crown a new king when the old king still reigns. It's treasonous, and the relationship between the two leaders of Israel is already poisoned by Saul's disobedience and Samuel's condemnation of him. Samuel is concerned about what will happen next. Yahweh, however, shows no such trepidation. Samuel may not know what to expect, but God's got the whole thing settled far ahead in the little backwoods village of Bethlehem. Samuel's uncertainty is reflected in the mood of the elders of Bethlehem upon the prophet's arrival. 
Having such a great and important man in their midst is doubly concerning. If Samuel is working for Saul, then Samuel's arrival might mean Saul has come to take from them, as kings characteristically do. If, however, Samuel is on his own, not working for Saul, then the elders of Bethlehem are worried that they may be housing a traitor. So timidly they ask him, uh, Samuel, do, uh, do, do you come in peace? Little do they know that they will soon bear witness to God enacting his will in a way that will be for the benefit of all Israel, and eventually, all humanity. From David the king will come the king of all kings, who will come in peace. Just as they ask Samuel, do you come in peace? Yeah, the king of all kings will come as the prince of peace, a messiah for all. So once everyone is consecrated and ready for the ceremony, the narrator expertly and dramatically ups the tension in this scene. There are dozens of people witnessing these events. There's Jesse and his whole family and the elders of Bethlehem and Samuel. But the only one who knows what's happening is Samuel, the prophet. And so Jesse's sons are brought forward, beginning understandably with the oldest, Eliab. First impressions are important, and what a first impression Eliab makes. We're not told what Eliab looks like, but we know he's an impressive specimen, so much so that just one look at him convinces Samuel that Eliab must be the one the Lord is looking for. But the Lord is looking for something else entirely, something, in fact, that cannot be seen at all. Saul The first king, he looked like a king. He was tall and stately looking. Eliab apparently looks like a king, enough to fool Samuel. But physical features are not part of the job description when it comes to serving God faithfully. In many ways, verse 7 isn't only the key verse for the story of David's first impressions, it's the key verse for all of 1 Samuel, maybe even all the Old Testament. Verse 7 says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. God's vision is piercing, and it isn't burdened by the lenses that we place over our own vision. Lenses that are distorted by either inflated or deflated sense of self. Lenses that search for ways to use others for our own gratification, through judgment or lust or envy or social ladder climbing. Lenses that are blinded by race or gender or attractiveness or status. It simply does not matter what physical features a person possesses. It doesn't matter how well or how poorly they dress themselves, how well or how poorly they make themselves up, how well or how poorly they present themselves. It doesn't matter how firm or weak their handshake is. All that matters is the heart, the mind, and the soul. And you cannot see those things at a glance. You have to closely inspect others and ourselves to see the beauty or the ugliness within. But God, he sees those things with ease. In fact, it's all he sees a heart devoted to him and to showing love to neighbor, a mind set on things above, a soul turned over to his will and his guidance. It doesn't matter how beautiful the bag is, if it's filled with trash, it will rot and stink. If it's filled with fresh fruit, however, it will carry a rich and nourishing fragrance. That's what God looks for. He doesn't care about the bag. He cares about what's in the bag. Are we filled with fruit or with trash? Amazingly, One of the great things about our God is he's able to even redeem the trash. David, for instance, will reveal a lot of garbage in his heart, but God will remain committed to him because David would always recommit himself back to God. He was a man after God's heart. Saul and Eliab, they had the looks of a king, but not the heart. And the heart is all that matters. Jesus himself was nothing special to look at. 
We have no physical description of him in scripture, partly to emphasize the fact that God doesn't care what we look like. But we do have this prophecy from Isaiah 53. It says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Isaiah 53 is a grand passage that perfectly details Jesus' suffering and Jesus' spiritual life. It describes exactly what Jesus was like, so it can be trusted to outline his physical appearance a little bit as well. And his physical appearances are best described as inconsequential. It didn't matter. People weren't attracted to Jesus because of what he looked like. They were drawn to him because he was gentle and kind, caring and compassionate, warm and welcoming. And he proclaimed beautiful truth as it had never been proclaimed before, and to whom it had never been proclaimed before. Jesus made his impressions on people with love, not looks, because that's all that matters to God. But David had to overcome more than just outward appearance to be anointed king. After Eliab is rejected, Samuel looks over six more brothers. None are fit for kingship, or as Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen these. The fact that David has seven older brothers is subtly significant. Throughout scripture and throughout Jewish history, seven has been the symbolic number of completion. That's why there's seven days of creation. God was finished. That's why we forgive 70 times seven. We keep forgiving because forgiveness is an act that's never completed. It's ongoing. That's why the beast in Revelation has seven heads and seven crowns. It's a portrait of complete evil. Seven means completion. Which brings us to David. David is outside of the seven. He is outside the expected number of completion. And he's the youngest son. Rewards and blessings always went to the eldest son in that culture. Though not in the Bible. The list of latter-born sons who are chosen by God is extensive. Abel over Cain. Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Moses over Aaron, and so on, because God is always choosing unexpected people. But culturally, in David's day, Eliab would be understood as the one to get anointed, as Samuel himself initially believed. But it's not the firstborn. It's not a son within the number of completion. It's the eighth son, the youngest son. David, in other words, is a complete outsider. It's completely unexpected. Jesse and his family were so convinced that David wouldn't be needed at this meeting that they never even bothered bringing him in from the sheep pasture. He's not even there for it. All the brothers are there except David. They didn't even think to bring him. And there's more. Bethlehem itself is probably the second most famous town in ancient Israel, after Jerusalem. If you were to ask anybody on the street to name two places in ancient Israel from the Bible, people would probably name Jerusalem, and then they would probably name Bethlehem as well. But that's only because of our familiarity with Jesus' birth narrative, and because it was David's hometown as well. In the time of 1 Samuel, Bethlehem was nothing. Even so far in this book, everything has taken place in a cycle of towns in the north of Israelite territory, towns like Shiloh, Ramah, and Gibeah. That's where all the people of consequence have been from. That's where all the action has been. Bethlehem is not in the north. Bethlehem lies way to the south of all that action. It's off the map, as far as this book is concerned. Samuel has drifted way into uncharted Israelite territory, far from the beaten path. And it's not like Jesse's family was anything special either. He is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, and Ruth has a book in the Bible named after her. But their story only became prominent after it led to the birth of David. David was an unspecial son born to a very unspecial father in a very unspecial family, 
living a very unspecial way of life in a very unspecial corner of backwater Israel. In short, David was nothing. He was nobody. But God saw him. God knew David's heart, and that heart is the thing that would make David one of the most special heroes in all of God's very special history amongst his incredibly special chosen people. It all comes down to the heart. It didn't matter what he looked like. It didn't matter that he was from the middle of nowhere. It didn't matter that he was the youngest. It didn't matter that he was merely a farm boy. He loved God. With his whole heart, David devoted himself to serving the Lord. And that's what made him special. That's what drove God to send Samuel all the way down to Bethlehem to sort through a bunch of reject candidates to find an absolute gem. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. David hasn't even entered the room yet. In fact, we haven't even heard what his name is yet. Jesse simply mentioned the youngest who is tending sheep. So the narrator is building tension. Imagine how awkward it must have been for everyone in that room or in that area waiting for this youngest son to show up. There's Samuel seated with dignity and power, twiddling his thumbs and waiting. There's all the elders of Bethlehem who are slightly fearful of Samuel. There's Jesse and his sons feeling the fresh sting of rejection and confusion. What is going on here? He calls all the brothers and then he just rejects each and every one. And everyone, every single person in that room is just waiting for the youngest son to return from the fields. As Walter Brueggemann writes, the narrator makes Jesse's household wait and makes the reader wait for the arrival of David. The story waits just as Israel itself waited. But then, finally, in verse 12, the wait is over. David arrives. As Brueggemann says again, this is the one for whom Israel, Samuel, Yahweh and the entire books of Samuel have been waiting. He's here. Interestingly, despite the enormous proclamation made in verse 7 that outward appearances don't matter, the first impression we are given of the future king is that he was, as it says in verse 12, glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Our first impression, ironically, is a physical one. But we already know his heart. God was seeking one whose heart completely belonged to him, and he deliberately sought out this most unlikely young man for the job. We know David's heart is good. Turns out his face ain't so bad either, hey ladies? Hey? Wink, wink. Sorry, that was stupid. But seriously, that physical description troubles me. The fact that the first, 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 first impression we get of David is a physical one, that's, that's troublesome to me, considering how God goes out of his way to downplay physical features in this very same chapter. But again, I think Brueggemann captures it well. He writes, David is one of the marginal people. He is uncredentialed and has no social claim to make. Therefore, among the marginal, there are beautiful people. And among the little ones, there is the potential for greatness. I I really like that quote. Among the marginal, there are beautiful people, if we look for them. David is an entirely lovely figure in that he is entirely empowered and motivated by the God who is love. Love radiates from his heart through his face, and out to the actions and commitments of of this future king. David is saturated in love because he is wholeheartedly devoted to his God. He will become king not because he looks like what a king should look like. He will become king because his heart belongs to the king who is greater than himself. That is our very first impression of Jesse's youngest son, the future savior of Israel, the forefather of the future savior of all humankind. That beautiful, faithful, loving heart is what makes the Lord urge Samuel 
Rise and anoint him. This is the one. He is here. This is David. He is the one. And so Samuel rises and anoints David, who is finally named in verse 13. There is no speaking mentioned in this anointing ceremony because the oil and the circumstances and the rush of God's spirit upon the future king, they say all that needs to be said. This is the one. He is set apart for special service to the Creator, based on no other qualifications other than his abundant love for God. This is a secret ceremony, but an absolutely legitimate one. A public anointing will follow much later in 2 Samuel. But this is the first of three first impressions we have of Israel's greatest king. The next first impression will tell how David came to make Saul's acquaintance and end up in the royal courts. And the final first impression, against Goliath, will show how David behaves in a faithful, king-like manner and how he will win the loyalty of the people. But this first first impression is crucial. It tells how David was selected and prepared for service and what makes him suited to be the one whom God goes out of his way, way out of his way, to choose. A handshake is an important first impression because it establishes what the business relationship may look like. Well, this anointing is a handshake between Yahweh, creation's king, and David, Israel's king. The business that follows will be conducted out of that mutual commitment to faithfulness and love. A television pilot establishes the characters, tensions, and emotional sensibilities of the story that follows. Here we have met First and Second Samuel's central character in a dramatic ceremony that highlights the central plot of God's story among his people. The central plot, the central tension, the central emotion is this, that God chooses unlikely people based solely on their willingness to love him. And one of modern history's greatest musical achievements was announced with the first impression of a single snare drum crack kicking open the door to our mind. This story kicks wide open the door to our understanding of our relationship with God, which is this, have faith, love fully, be willing. This first impression of David is particularly meaningful for us here at Clyde Christian Bible Church. We are not necessarily special people in our own eyes, nor in the eyes of the world around us. But God does not share those same eyes. His eyes are more piercing, more penetrating, more powerful. While human eyes stop at merely what can be seen outwardly, his eyes are completely uninterested in the superficial. His eyes see the heart. So it doesn't matter that we, like David, are from the middle of nowhere. It doesn't matter that we, like David, exist off the beaten paths, far from places of influence and power, other than Clyde Auctioneering, which is a very powerful and influential place of auctioning. Right, Pat and Wendy? It doesn't matter that we, like David, have regular menial jobs, It doesn't matter that we, like David, stand outside the image of completion and perfection. We are a whole church of eight sons and daughters outside the the number of perfection. We are unqualified and unknown and uncredentialed. It doesn't matter if the world never sees us, because God sees us. He sees people like David. He chooses people like David. He calls people like David to serve him, and he empowers people like David through his mighty spirit. And we are people like David. He sees us, chooses us, he calls us and empowers us, just as he did to a forgotten shepherd boy from Bethlehem 3,000 years ago. Our first impression of David is important because it's our first impression as well. The Lord looks at the heart, not the outward appearances. Thankfully, 
because balding, snaggletoothed, unkempt, nearsighted, hairy-shouldered, unfit, big-eared white guys have never really been the hottest tickets around. But God doesn't see that when he sees me. Instead, he sees a beloved child. He looks inside the bag and sees the fruit that he has planted, that he has nurtured, that he has grown within me. Sure, there is some trash in there too, but if my heart belongs to him, I will trust him to clean that out for me, since I can't clean it myself. If I am a man after God's own heart, I'll have a heart that looks more like the heart of God. A heart modeled after another unassuming king born into obscurity in Bethlehem. A heart of humility, a heart of grace, a heart of justice, a heart of compassion. A heart that confesses and repents of the garbage and then partners with God's Holy Spirit to grow good fruit that I can share with those around me. First impressions don't tell the whole story. A handshake doesn't communicate the intricate details of a business venture. A pilot episode doesn't spell out every dramatic and mysterious twist and turn to follow. A snare drum doesn't outline the work of the other instruments or the complex beauty of the poetic lyrics. We are only just meeting David, the shepherd boy, chosen by God to become king. We're just meeting him for the first time. We will be shocked and surprised and inspired by the stories he will lead us into. We will learn from his mistakes as often as we will learn from his successes. But one central lesson will pierce through all others, a lesson that we are given right from the beginning, in the very first of David's first impressions, a lesson that teaches us that each one of us, though we are nothing special in the eyes of the world, is seen by the God who looks at the heart. We are special to him. Faith is the act of turning our heart over to God. And he rewards that faith by seeing us, calling us, choosing us, and empowering us. Just as he did for that farmer from the middle of nowhere 3,000 years ago. Talk about a great first impression. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that we are nothing special in the eyes of the world, but we know just as as relevantly, just as powerfully, that you we are seen by you, that we are special to you. Thank you for seeing us. Thank you for making us your people. We know that we're nothing special. We're only special because we are in you, Jesus. You are holy. You are good. You are completely set apart. You, you are the definition of special, and what's special in us is everything that you share with us. So thank you for seeing us. Thank you for growing good fruit inside of us. Thank you for the first impression we have of David, that you, Lord, look at our hearts. You don't care what we look like. You don't care what we've done in the past. You just want us to turn to you. You just want us to to turn our whole hearts over to you. Holy Spirit, help us to do that. We pray it in your name. Amen. All right, people, when I say you are nothing, you are not nothing to me. The, the world doesn't know what it's talking about. You are great people. You are very dearly loved, not just by God, but by myself, by each other, uh, as brothers and sisters. And, and I can't wait for us to be together and not hug or sing, but be together in worship and praise and learning and growth. I really look forward to it. Please know that just like God sees you, I see you. I value you. Uh, you, are, you are special people, even though we come from nowhere special, just like David. So have a great week. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Love, not looks, because that's all that matters to God. We know David's heart is good. Turns out his face ain't so bad either, hey ladies? But physical features are not part of the job description when it comes to serving God faithfully.
Well, how does it feel?